This third group of people, and I used to be in this group, think that God could single-handedly answer prayers and fix things, but for some reason doesn't always do that or waits until we ask. But think about the logic, the problems of that. Supposing God is perfectly loving, which most Christians think that's the case, and supposing God knows everything that's possible to know and wants the best for any situation, it's kind of hard for me to get motivated to pray to that God, because if God can do it without any request or help on my part, um, is God just sort of sitting back, arms folded, saying, you know, unless Tom prays, I'm not going to step in and help out his daughter or stop this cancer or, you know, it's, it sounds really kind of weird. Would, would a good parent who um, saw their kid drowning in the lake say, uh, you know, unless they ask for my help, I'm not going to jump out there and yeah. rescue them? What if everything we know is just a lie, is just a sign of the time? Welcome back to the What If Project Podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 113. And uh, last week was our two-year anniversary show, which means that this week is the first episode of a brand new year. Uh, Season four of the show will begin in December. I don't know why it, it fell that way. Like Season one was like September through December when I was kind of getting my bearings and season two went from January to January. Season three, which we're now, will go January through January. So season four will start in January of 2021. If that just confused you, have no fear. I am confused as well. But that's how that's how it's working. But this is the first episode of the, the third year, the third full year of the podcast. And uh, last week was fun. We sat down with my friend, my mentor, Bo Sanders, talked about some fun stuff. This week, we're sitting down with uh, Thomas Ord, who has been on the podcast before. And uh, today, he's coming on to talk to us about his brand new book called God Can't Questions and Answers. So if you're familiar with his first book, uh, God Can't, well, not his first book, but his previous book, uh, God Can't, uh, you might have had some questions about it because even the title it's kind of triggering in terms of uh, it just kind of brings up all sorts of questions. Like, what do you mean God can't? There's things that God can't do. Like, God can't heal people. God can't do miracles. God can't lift rocks. Like, what is it that God can't do, right? So in this episode, he answers some of the questions that our listeners have had um, after listening to previous episodes that he's been on for. Some of my own questions, some of the questions from the book. So uh, it's a good one. I think you're going to enjoy it. We talk a lot about prayer, miracles, all sorts of things, so uh, stay tuned for for the fun. Next week, I've got to tell you, next week, next week we're getting crazy. Uh, we are starting a brand new series. It's going to be an eight-part series called To Hell with Hell. Uh, we're bringing on eight different people to talk about the doctrine 
of hell. Some of them, some people think that a place called hell exists, uh, but they've radically rethought what that means. Other people, such as myself, don't think that there's a hell. And they've also radically thought what they've been taught. Uh, but really, the, the purpose of this series is important because it's going to kick some hornet's nests. It's going to upset some people. But I wanted to do this series for a very important reason. Hell carries a lot of baggage. A lot of people have been hurt by the doctrine of hell. They've been hurt. They've been shamed. They've been outcast. They've been made to feel like they're going there if they don't shape up their life. And for a lot of people, that's caused a lot of fear in terms of their faith and their relationship with God. And that's not cool. And so I wanted to do this series for a couple of reasons. Number one, I wanted to show people that it's okay to think differently about this stuff. Like We're going to be talking to people like N.T. Wright, who's one of the top New Testament theologians in the universe. Uh, we're going to be talking to Brian McLaren. We're going to be talking to William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack. We're going to be talking to uh, Jennifer Mayo, who was on the, the show for our Pride series. Connie Tuttle's coming back on to talk about hell. She was on the on for the Women series. All sorts of different people with all sorts of different perspectives. Because if you're in a spot where you're just not comfortable with believing that God sends people to hell to be tortured forever because they don't believe in Jesus, I'm on board that train with you. <laughs> so I wanted to give you some, some different perspectives to hopefully give you some different language to rethink what your thoughts are on this very important topic. So if you've been hurt by this topic, know someone who's been hurt by this topic, or it just sits uncomfortably in your spirit, this is a series that I really think you're going to enjoy and uh, get a lot out of. So we're going to do four four episodes. It's eight episodes total. So we're going to do four episodes. We're going to take a break for one week because I have an episode that I, I promised or I told someone that I would drop before uh, the middle or end of October. Uh, so more on that later. But we'll do four episodes, take a break for a week, then do the last four episodes. And uh, it's going to run us right into the month of November. Now we'll tackle a couple other things, head into Christmas time, and then head into the the new year. So uh, things are good. And this this series is already recorded. So it's already recorded in the books, ready to go. Got to do a little bit of editing on a few episodes and a couple tweaks here and there. Put them up on the, on the interwebs. And uh, they're ready to go. And uh, they, are, they are good. And I've gone back and obviously listened to them um, as I've done some editing. And uh, they are they're helpful. So I look forward to that. Next week, we'll be talking to N.T. Wright. He'll be kicking it off for us. Uh, so look forward to, to that. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, please consider uh, giving some money. Uh, every month there, anywhere from $3 a month up to $20 a month. And I hate feeling like a commercial, like I don't want to beg for money because that's like weird. But the reality is that I, I do this in my free time, right? Because like I work 40 hours a week for Apple. I have a family, right? I have a wife, I have a daughter who's three. And so she's up at 7.45 in the morning. She's in bed at 8.30. I'm working from home these days. There's, there's just not a lot of time. Uh, but I really am very, very intentional with my schedule, uh, trying to, when I do my interviews, the editing, 
the books I got to read to get ready for the interviews, all the different things. And so if there's any possible way that you can give some money, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, It all goes to pay for the hosting fees, for the blog, for the podcast, for all that kind of stuff. Uh, It goes towards technology needs. My old computer was failing me, so I was able to save up money for quite a while and purchase a brand new computer uh, thanks to our patrons. So uh, thank you to those who support the show. Um, It also goes towards my trip to Wild Goose every year. So this year, had a little extra money because I was able to, Wild Goose was canceled, so I I got all the money back for that because of COVID, and so I was able to put that money into the lump I was saving for the computer and get a computer much sooner than I was anticipating, so uh, I no longer see the spinning pinwheel and the computer no longer overheats at times, so uh, that's good. Uh, So thank you. So thank you for the 27 people who who sponsor the show, Uh, and if you're able to do it, want to do it. Uh, it's patreon.com slash whatifproject. Uh, special music today is from my friend Before Jane. Uh, I've known this kid for, this kid, he's not a kid anymore. Uh, he just turned 20 last week. It's his birthday weekend. Uh, his birthday week last week. So uh, I've known him for a long time. Like we used to play Matchbox, ma- we used to play Matchbox cars when he was a kid and uh, watch movies together. Uh, so I've known him for a long time, and he's a really special guy doing really good things in the world, passionate about his music, passionate about his craft, has always been very musical and very passionate about music. So head over to iTunes, Spotify, all the places, look up before Jane, download his music. Like I said, it was his birthday last week for crying out loud. Download his music, listen to it, uh, pass it around, share it, uh, show him some some love. I know he will be grateful for that. So all of that to say, this is episode number 113, and it's my conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, the one and the only, Thomas Ord. Enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with Thomas Ord, who is going for the hat trick today with his third visit to the podcast. So Thomas, welcome back, my friend. <laughs> oh, it's good to have another conversation with you, Glenn. I didn't realize it was the third time. Third time. I think the first one was uh, God Can't, the original. And then the second one was COVID. And this is number number three. Oh, that's right. I forgot about the COVID one. Yeah, yeah it good. was like a, a, Thanks. Yeah, it was like a surprise bonus episode, I guess, that we did. Yeah, well, I really like your podcast, and I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you. So you wrote a book, um, God Can't, that was what, was like a year and a half ago, maybe? Yeah, it's Two about years? right. Yeah? yeah. And then you recently released another book called God Can't Q&A. So I guess I'll ask why the follow-up book, like, did you, why, why did you feel the need to write this? Did people have a lot of questions? Did you feel like you had loose ends? The tie up was it the publisher kind of tapping you like what what where did this originate well there were a couple of, of motivations for me one is that um people read the previous book god can't and the idea that god is inherently uncontrolling and 
they naturally had questions about the implications of this view. You know, mm. many of them really liked it. I got lots of letters from especially people who were struggling with uh, suffering in their own life, abuse, uh, torture. I mean, really powerful letters. But then they said, okay, if this is true, that God can't single-handedly stop the crap that happens in the world and in my own life, then what are the implications for the afterlife, for mm. miracles, for prayer, for Jesus, for the Bible, you know, all these kinds of things. So mm. in part, it was to, to try to spell those out. But also, at least equally important, is I realized that the God can't idea actually helps answer a bunch of other questions people have give solutions to problems that folks have been wrestling with. And so it was kind of, maybe I could put it this way. I was playing defense and offense. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for our listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with the original book, I know you just obviously touched on it a little bit, but what is like the grand message of God can't like, what does that actually, actually mean? Yeah, there are five big ideas in the book God Can't, and probably the biggest and most important is the one I tackle in the first chapter, which is the idea that God can't single-handedly prevent evil because God's love is inherently uncontrolling. Hmm. And I think God loves everyone, every creature, everything. And since God's love, in my view, is uncontrolling, God simply can't control anyone, any creature or anything. Um, this is, a, is really good news, uh, especially to people who suffer because they don't have to believe that God is causing their suffering or allowing it. They don't have to think God is abandoning them. Um, and so the big idea was God can't single-handedly prevent evil, but I added some other ideas such as uh, God suffers with us. God mm -hmm. is relational. Uh, God works to heal to the greatest extent possible, but just simply can't heal single-handedly. That God uh, takes the bad things that happens and works with us in creation to try to squeeze some good out of the bad that God didn't want in the first place. Mm. And uh, finally, that God actually needs our cooperation. We have a role to play in uh, love winning. Mm. So it's not like God is this mastermind being who's, you know, allowing some evil things to happen and stopping some other things from happen happening, but it's that God literally can't stop evil on his own. That's right. Exactly. Okay. That mm. word single-handedly is a really important one because I'm saying that God is active, mm. but God alone can't uh, bring about consequences. So God needs cooperation from complex creatures, from less complex creatures, from smallest creatures. Um, and it isn't that God has this like master plan or blueprint from mm. all eternity, how things are going to be. But God engages us moment by moment in genuine, ongoing relationship. Yeah. And I think that, like you said, that word single-handedly is important because in a lot of the times that I've shared your material, and in particular, just even the cover of your book, elicits sometimes a very loud response from some people. <laughs> and I think that the key to understanding is that, like I've tried to say, like, 
he's not saying that God like literally can't do anything, but it's that he can't do it on his own. Like he needs human, there has to be cooperation with God. And like, I think if you look at the Bible, you see that all throughout the Bible, right? Yeah, exactly. I think the Bible strongly supports my uh, position. Uh, but it is kind of interesting. You know, I, I see reviews on Amazon or Goodreads or other places in which it's quite obvious that people who are upset with the book have only read the cover and actually right. <laughs> not read what I say inside it. Right. Have you but, read past the first two words? Exactly. But on the other hand, there are some people, again, especially those who are survivors mm. who see those two words and are like, yes, I've been kind of thinking this for a while and now somebody's saying it and then explaining it in, you know, ways that I can understand, but also some, some theological depth. Yeah. And I think I've, I think I mentioned this maybe on a previous talk with you or somewhere along the line with the podcast, but I think for, for, for me, like this message really drove home when uh, my wife had a a miscarriage uh, a long time ago before, before Jordan was, was born. But um, like, it was just a time of asking like so many questions and like so many really good hearted church people in my life at the time where, you know, God is sovereign and, you know, God has his reasons. And although like those answers worked for me when it wasn't like personal, when it didn't, when I didn't yeah. feel the sting as much, I, I remember wrestling, like, I just don't understand how those answers work anymore. And then it was shortly after I came across your material and then this, you know, this book came out and it was like a total revelation for me that just relieved so much pressure. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. And it is oftentimes, you know, personal struggle or struggle by friends or family members that really make us rethink those, um, the, that big question about God and suffering. And, and I, I also want to add that the people who came to you and said, you know, trust God, God is sovereign, or God has a plan, or God's going to make something good out of this, all those sort of things. I don't believe those things, but I don't doubt the motives and the intentions of those people. I Definitely. think most people are good hearted. They really do mean, want the best for you. It's just that the answers they typically give, at least to me, are unsatisfying. Yeah. Like I remember when those answers used to be the first ones off of my tongue when somebody yeah. came to me <laughs> with a problem. And there were moments when like I would sit and literally cry with somebody, you know, because I, I genuinely felt their their pain. And I genuinely believed the answers that I was giving them. But like you said, once the table was turned and I found myself in the hospital room with my wife, getting that news, it just felt entirely different. And the answers that I knew by heart, <laughs> because I shared them so many times myself just didn't fit anymore. So what I want to do is I want to press into uh, two questions stemming from uh, God can't that people have mentioned to me after listening to previous episodes that you and I have done. And we've talked about this stuff before on the podcast, but maybe we can use this time to kind of drill down a little bit harder. And the first one has to do with, with prayer. That seems to be the one that everybody is always, always asking. So yeah, uh, let's start there. Like, how do we pray while embracing this theology of God can't like, I had a listener once who said to me, like, is it the very essence of prayer the opposite that God can't, because when I pray, aren't I praying with the expectation that God can do something? And if I embrace this idea that God can't, it feels like it takes the 
the wind out of my sails, so to speak. And like, I wonder what's the point of praying at all. So I kind of have an idea of where to go with this, but I, I still wrestle with this sometimes myself when I sit down to pray. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's, it's one I've been thinking about for a while. And, you know, earlier I said uh, my motives for writing this book were sometimes playing defense and sometimes playing offense. Mm. And this is actually an issue in which I'm playing offense. And by mm. that, I mean, I think this view actually does a world of good and is really helpful for us to think about prayer. Mm. So let me, let me start by my answer by just being clear that uh, for our listeners that prayer comes in a lot of different forms. Mm. And what I think we're primarily talking about here is petitionary prayer. Yes. You know, there's, you know, we sometimes pray prayers of confession, you know, where we, uh, we express our need for God's forgiveness or God's strength. We, we praise God, we thank God, all these kinds of things. And actually, I think my view has positive implications for those, but we're going to, I assume, concentrate on petitionary prayer. Yep. I think that's the, the part that people struggle with the most. Yeah. Yep. So before I give my answer, I want to talk about kind of three other ways of thinking about God hmm. that a lot of people have and kind of spell out the real problems with these three ways before I get to my, what I think is a, a much better way of thinking. Okay. So one way, there are some people in, in who exist, uh, many of them are Christians and many of them are in the uh, Calvinist tradition, who think that God literally controls everything and has predetermined, predestined all things since the beginning of creation. Mm. It's not my view, and it's a minority view, I think, in Christianity. But there are still some people who have this. And so when they say God is in control, they mean God controls absolutely everything, and it's been predetermined from the outset of time itself. Hmm. Now, if this is true, petitionary prayer makes no sense to me. Because if this is true, the future has already been settled, determined. God already knows what it's going to be. My asking God to do something isn't going to change anything about the future. In fact, my asking God to do something is God is something God has already determined that I would do. And so I, mean, <laughs> I answered your prayer millions of years ago. And the answer yes. is no. <laughs> right. And not only that, I, I not only answered it, but I forced this kind of strong, but I determined yeah. that you would pray, you know, or not pray. Right. So, if I really take this view seriously and I decide not to pray, then I have to say, well, God forced me not to pray. And it mm. just yeah. creates so many conundrums. It's yeah. not the majority view, but there are some people who have it. So a second view. This is the idea that God is not involved at all. Mm. God is watching us from a distance. You know, um, God is, this is sometimes called deism. God's got a hands-off policy. Now, if this is true, of course, petitionary prayer makes no sense either because we're just, you know, throwing words out there that aren't going to have any difference in the world. And I reject that view. Mm. Most Christians I know don't believe either the first or the second view I know that I've expressed. They don't think God controls absolutely everything and has done so since the beginning of time and predetermined, nor do they think God has a totally hands off policy. This third group of people, and I used to be in this group, think that God could single-handedly answer prayers and fix things, 
but for some reason doesn't always do that or waits until we ask. But think about the logic, the problems of that. Supposing God is perfectly loving, which most Christians think that's the case, and supposing God knows everything that's possible to know and wants the best for any situation, it's kind of hard for me to get motivated to pray to that God because if God can do it without any request or help on my part, um, is God just sort of sitting back, arms folded, saying, you know, unless Tom prays, I'm not going to step in and help out his daughter or stop this cancer or, you know, it's, it sounds really kind of weird. Would, would a good parent who um, saw their kid drowning in the lake say, uh, you know, unless they ask for my help, I'm not going to jump out there and yeah. rescue them? Yeah. No. Well, there's not, there's not enough people on the beach who are asking for my help. So, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or that's another thing. You yeah. know, let's get a prayer chain going or, right. or something, you know? <laughs> right. Um, so this idea that God right. could single-handedly fix things, whether I pray or not, and God's smarter than me, doesn't motivate me to pray at all. And God, mm. you know, assuming God's loving because I think to myself, a truly loving God is going to do the best possible no matter what I do, because my prayers don't really make a difference to this God. Or if they do, then God's just a monster. God's, mm -hmm. you know, just saying, it's all about me, me, me. Unless you don't ask, I'm not going to do anything. So this traditional, I'll call it the traditional or common view of prayer, has got lots of problems. And that's why I think a lot of people, maybe you, in fact, uh, who have this view of God sometimes find it difficult to want to get motivated to pray because you just yeah. don't know what's going on. Yeah. Now for my solution or my, <laughs> my particular approach. Now, as I said earlier, I don't think God can single-handedly fix things. However, I do believe God is what in theology we sometimes call relational. That mm. is, we have a real effect upon God. God isn't an unmoved mover, but mm. God is influenced by everything that happens in the world. And praying is an activity, a happening that has an effect upon God. Furthermore, I think we live in a relational world such that my actions affect others. That not only affect my body, but my relationships with other creatures and in my environment. So in a world that's relational and a God that's relational, my prayers have a real impact, a real influence upon what's going on. And I think that when I act in one moment, be it an act of prayer, it actually opens up new possibilities for God in the next moment and future moments, because God now has new relational data new kinds of um, 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 information. God has a way of being that's different from the previous moment. So moment by moment, my actions have an effect upon God, have an effect upon the world, have an effect upon myself. Mm -hmm. And that opens up new possibilities for God to work in new kinds of ways. It, it doesn't mean, and I want to be clear about this, <laughs> it doesn't mean that because I pray, God now can control others like God, you know, would like to control, but can't until I ask God to control. I'm not saying that. So I'm not saying my prayers unilaterally determine or single-handedly make God able to do something. But I am saying 
that my prayers really do have an impact on God and the world, and the future can truly be different because I prayed. And when you say that, like our prayers open up new possibilities for God, like maybe give us a a hard example of what that might look like. What's that mean? The easiest one is to talk about our own lives. Hmm. So um, if I say to God um, in prayer, God, please help me to uh, self-regulate, have more self-control. I am in a sense agreeing with God that I need to have more self-control. Maybe I'm on a diet, which I actually am at the moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, (laughs) it's hard for me to be on a diet. I've got to change my habits. Mm -hmm. Well, when I say to God, God, help me, I'm open now to your work in my life. This is new, uh, now a new possibility for God to work that mm. previously wasn't there, at least to the same degree, because I've now cooperated. I think most people understand that. But now just imagine that if we live in an interrelated universe, that uh, any kind of actions in relation to others also opens up new possibilities. Mm. So in this new book, I, I take an example of someone with a coronavirus and kind of walk through what's happening as I pray a petitionary prayer in terms of how it's affecting God and affecting the person I'm praying with. That's good. So it creates a new, almost like when, when, when you pray and you come into agreement with something that needs to be done, I guess when, when you're in a state of disagreement, that door is not open, but when you're in a place of agreement, all of a sudden there's a new, a new possibility. Is that, is that, am I on the right track? That is part of it. Another part of it is going to sound wild to some people, but I think God can learn new things moment by moment. Mm. And since God is a loving God and God learns new information, some of that new information means that God is going to act differently. Mm. Let me, let me illustrate Mm. this with uh, 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 um, an example with my daughter. My youngest daughter liked to run track and she was pretty good. And let's suppose that on, uh, during the season, she tells me on a Monday, she says, you know, dad, these, the shoes that I've got right now, I, re- I like them, but they're really worn out and I really need a new pair because these are falling apart. And I say, well, you know, on Saturday, let's go to the, you know, the Nike store and, and get some, get some shoes. She says, mm-hmm. sounds great. I love the new Nikes. So we make plans for that. Now, let's say that on Thursday night, she says to me, you know, I've been doing some research and I really like the new Brooks running shoes. Mm. It looks like that those uh, are at least as good as the Nikes. Uh, I think I want to get a pair of those. Now, assuming I'm a loving father and, you know, all things being equal, this is the, just a good an option. I'm going to say, hmm, new information here. I love my daughter. I want her to have good shoes. All things, other things being equal. Yeah, let's get those new Brooks on Saturday instead of Nike. There's new information for me. My daughter has a change of mind. And because I want what's good for my daughter, I'm going to have a change of action. Hmm. I think we can apply that to God as well. I think a lot of this theology and really a lot of things in your book make sense a lot more sense i should say when you look at it through the lens of your own relationship especially if you have children i think it makes a lot more sense yeah uh, that's a really great point i mean a lot of times when i'm speaking um in uh, various universities churches or conferences people will come up to me and they'll say you know 
what you say just fits my experience. Mm. And I think I, I see that as a big compliment because, um, yeah, I do think this theology fits our experience and I think fits the common way most people read the Bible, at least a lot of the time, maybe not all the Bible, but a lot of the Bible. Yeah. It's funny. I'm just thinking now as you're talking, like when I think of this in terms of my daughter, um, the other day, it's a couple of weeks ago, we had a really bad rainstorm and she likes to go run around in the puddles. And so yeah. when it was over, we went outside to run around in the mud puddles and this has happened multiple times in the past. I said to her, okay, it's time to come in and we're going to go and we're going to wash off. And she would just pitch an absolute fit. Like I am not going in the house and there's nothing I got that, uh, short of picking her up and like yeah. tying her up and dragging her in the house. Like it was impossible <laughs> to get her in. But then it was one of the, the last time or maybe the time before that she said to me, I need to go in and, and wash off. And all of a sudden okay. it was super easy to go inside and we worked together to get her tubby ready and everything else. And I think just thinking about that, like her, her coming to me and saying, I need to go wash off created a new possibility <laughs> that wasn't there yeah, the previous times. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you have any suggestions um, for people who are embracing this idea of an uncontrolling God, yet they're completely lost with, how to pray. Like for instance, we talked about COVID in your book and we lost yeah. a family member to COVID um, a few weeks ago. And it was like a heartbreaking, horrible thing to watch. And in the days leading up to her passing, she was put on a ventilator. Uh, we received multiple updates a day from doctors, nurses, that things were getting better then they weren't getting better. They were like just back and forth, back and forth. And finally they said like, there's nothing you know, that we can do. And like 10 years ago, I would have been on the phone, you know, getting the prayer chain up like we talked about before. Mm. I would have been binding principalities and powers of the unseen world. I would have been dressing in the armor of God, pulling out all the stops. But this time, though, like I sat down to pray and trying to pray with the content of your book in my mind. Yeah. I literally said to God, like, God, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say to you, to you right now. Like, I, I believe that you can't make this better on your own but i kind of believe or at least hope that you you can and so i found myself yeah. like praying that like the father of the boy in the gospel is you know i believe but help me unbelief and so i guess yeah. like my my question is like what advice do you have for people who like me you know we're we're rethinking this stuff at a deep level but we're also thinking about how it impacts our our prayer life that some of us have had a routine for 10, 20, 30, maybe 40, 50 years. It's like learning to pray all over again. And sometimes it just feels exhausting. So do you have any advice for people who kind of find themselves in that, in that place? Yeah, well, I'm in that place too. So I don't want to come oh, across not as, alone. You know, yeah, <laughs> having all the answers here. Um, but there are some sort of things that I think about uh, in relation to this. One of them is to not be hard on yourself or on others when mm. you have that deep desire that God fix things single-handedly, even though you don't think God can, mm. <laughs> you know, it's yep. kind of one of those things that, you know, the old, the old phrase that even, even atheists pray in foxholes that mm. sometimes we're in a crappy situation and our prayers are not really theologically accurate. They're more just an expression of our deepest desires. Mm. So I don't, you know, when I hear someone else pray for God to control some situation to, to, you know, cure cancer or 
you know, save someone from COVID-19. I don't sit too judgmentally on them. I just Mm. assume this is a cry from their heart. Mm. But for myself, because like you, I want to have a theologically consistent prayer. I actually want to pray a prayer I believe in. Yeah. It's been a real process of kind of working through what that looks like. And what I often find myself doing in that kind of prayer is I'll, I'll kind of begin by reminding me of myself of uh, what I think are these core ideas that God is a God of love, is uncontrolling, mm. that they're, uh, that agents in the world, not only humans, but others have freedom that God can't take away. And even smaller agents have some kind of agency, um, like cells that God can't control entirely. And then I'll pray a prayer, something like this. I'll say, God, um, you know the the situation we're in right now even better than I do. And you know how much this grieves me and how desperately I want to see, let's say, Mary, Mary healed. Um, God, I now ask you to give me insight, to give Mary insight, to give physicians insight, to help us all work as the very best we can to try to cooperate with your healing activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what that exactly that looks like, but I'm open, I'm willing, I'm your vessel, I'm your hands and feet, whatever. Um, and I am looking for your wisdom and insight. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of prayer that I will pray. Mm-hmm. Now, if the person is there with me who's suffering, I'll usually have a longer prayer that involves talking about God already trying to heal, but encountering forces and factors that are against that. Hmm. You know, some, some traditions think about um, the devil or demons of, as a part of thing. And my, my view doesn't require belief in those. I can hmm. also talk about cells not having cooperation or things, but I do, I do like the general notion that God alone doesn't decide outcomes hmm. and um, we have to cooperate with God. And sometimes our conscious cooperation isn't enough to fix the situation. I think sometimes too, you know, I know from my, like in the past, it's, it feels easier to, um, lack of a better word, like pass the buck over to God mm-hmm. in prayer because it lifts responsibility off of, off of my shoulders. And I've noticed that in this way of praying, uh, the word cooperation is huge because it requires, often requires something on the human side of things, like not yeah. just throwing it all onto God's shoulders, but it really forces you to almost slow down, assess the situation. Like, what is my role in this? What is the role of everybody around me in this? And what can we do in order to work with God to almost be the answer to the prayer that we want to see? Yeah, I think that's crucial. But mm. but I also want to quickly add in that sometimes everyone does their dead level best to cooperate and things still go to crap. Yeah. People still die. Yeah. And so I don't want to I don't want people to get a, a complex of blaming ourselves or the victim for not cooperating because sometimes we're doing everything we can in the body ourselves, our organs, our environment, our society isn't cooperating with God mm. and we're not to blame. And, and, um, you know, it just sucks. <laughs> so that's a good question. I wanted to ask you about that too, is about, it's about blaming because it feels like it's, it's almost like the natural direction to go. Like if God requires some sort of, some sort of cooperation is required on the natural on the, or I should say on the human 
earthly, whatever side of things and prayer does not get answered. It seems easy then to just start pointing fingers at, well, this person didn't have enough faith or that person was, you know, not cooperating as much as they could or whatever. Like how do, how do we guard, how do we guard against that? Like, how do we, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even know what I'm asking, but I'm wondering like, how do I keep my mind from going in that direction? Well, I sometimes call this the problem of blaming the victim. Mm. That is, uh, you know, that if people aren't healed, well, it must have been their fault. I mean, it's really at the heart of the story of Job in the Bible, right? Yeah, right. Job is, <laughs> is a righteous, yeah. <laughs> right. um, but I think in reality, not every time, but the majority of the time, people who suffer are looking to cooperate with God consciously as the very best they can, hmm. but they can't control their bodies or their in environments. And so therefore even their conscious cooperation isn't sufficient for them to find healing. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's pretty, if you, if you start thinking about things, you realize you just don't, control your body entirely <laughs> and the older i get the more i know that's true <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but even even when i was younger i realized that you know there were things my body would do that i just didn't want it to do and and um and i think that's helpful when we think about people who are suffering from i keep going to cancer but i could pick all kinds of other things hmm. that uh, we can't just think our way and be positive and pray our way to getting healed as if our minds can totally control the cancerous cells i don't think god totally controls them i don't think we totally control them i think we influence them and so does god but that's not the same as single-handedly determining what they do hmm. therefore when we pray and we don't get the results we want to see, it's, not, it's often not because we just didn't have enough faith or we're not trying hard enough. So let's go back then to my, I'll just, we'll just use my personal example with my family member that passed away of COVID. Like yeah. I think about like that, especially that last week, like everybody and their brother was praying. Like everybody that we knew was offering up prayers and knowing this person, like she was, not my not blood family, but she's my my wife's um, godmother. So very very close. Someone who's been in the family for a long time, and like knowing her, like I know that she was fighting, even though she was yeah. you know on a on a ventilator, unconscious. Like I know this woman is a fighter, so I know that she's doing everything she can. We're all praying, we're all having faith, we're all believing. At the end of the day, like the prayer that we were looking for was not answered. So would we say then that her her cells, her, her body, whatever was going on inside was unable to cooperate with God. Is that like kind of where well, we, I would we say would it like this and here I'm not a, a physician. So sure, I don't sure. know details, but I would say it like this. She was fighting a virus and that virus had powers that her body could not um, uh, reject or mm. um, could not control. Um, I'm, I'm not, getting the right verb here, but sure. you get the idea. Yeah. Um, and God can't control that virus either. Mm -hmm. Now, all of us, all of you praying, we're working in whatever ways you could, but um, there are some forces and, and factors that um, we just can't overcome single-handedly. Mm. Now, what's interesting is, let's say by this time next year, there is a... Um, 
um, oh, what are the scientists working on to give a us vaccine. a vaccine? Vaccine, yeah. Yep, yep. Let's say there's a vaccine and one of your family members gets uh, COVID-19 and you pray and they give them the vaccine and all of a sudden they get better. Mm. Now, are we going to say in that situation, oh, well, God didn't do anything. Our prayers didn't do anything. It was just the vaccine. Mm. I don't think so. At least mm. I'm not going to say that. Yeah. I think God is working and active right now trying to help scientists find a vaccine. And when that's possible and is effective, we're going to say that was an avenue. That was a new bit of information that God now had available to work in the world for good. So um, all this to say there are various factors and actors, both that work toward healing and work against it. And we can't control those entirely, although we can influence them and neither can God control those entirely. Yeah. I think as much as like on the surface, I don't like that answer. Um, at the same time, I really, I really do like that answer because it's so much better in my, in my heart than just imagining God listening to the prayers, being able to do something but just choosing to be like that father on the side of the sea while their daughter's drowning in the ocean, just choosing not to do anything at all. Yeah. That's, right? I oftentimes say that to myself and to others. Look, the alternative to this position is a whole lot worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and when I say, and that's sort of playing defense. Sure. Sure. But the offense is uh, it, this means that in other situations in which something good occurs, that's unexpected. Hmm. Um, then we can say, yeah, our influence, our activities, our prayers actually made a difference to God in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So second question kind of goes off the kind of on the coattails of prayer. Um, but if God is uncontrolling, unable to exercise grand control over the universe, like what do we do with, with miracles? And you have this line in your book, I want to read it real quick, but you say, God's Causal action in relation to creation is conditioned by what's possible. Now, like I've, I've been somebody who's been through Bible college, seminary, like had classes on miracles, divine healing. And I was always taught that a, a miracle is, is God uh, like defying the possible to do the impossible or to move past the natural to do this supernatural act. So maybe talk to me about about miracles. Like I know you believe miracles happen, like you, your theology leaves plenty of space for that. You talk about it in your book. Um, but maybe walk us through how miracles and God can't theology can coexist. Because I think of even like the miracle of Lazarus, like raising Lazarus from the dead, like to me, and I've always preached it like this, that there's something where there's no human possibility there. And Jesus moves past possibility into the impossible, past the natural, into the supernatural, raises this guy from the dead, and we move on. So maybe help us help us understand that a little bit. Well, it's pretty complex. And so I understand why people ask these questions. And you are correct that my theology affirms miracles, the miracles in Scripture and the miracles today. Hmm. Um, but it's also important as I begin to talk about my view to acknowledge that we often pray or pray for or want miracles that don't occur. And so um, people, and I know a lot of them who go around saying, well, God just does miracles left and right. I say, 
boy, sure not enough in my life. Sure not enough to solve all kinds of problems like we just talked about your your friend who died from the coronavirus. Hmm. Um, so we have to, th- I think, have a theory that accounts for why miracles sometimes occur and other times don't occur. In hmm. fact, I want to say the majority of time don't occur. Hmm. Um, so then the question comes to, well, what do we mean by a miracle? And here I offer a definition in the book that's pretty concise, I think. But I say a miracle has three parts. It's something that's good. We're not going to say, you know, murder is a miracle. At least mm. I'm not going to. It's something that's unexpected or unusual. Mm. Um, some people want to say all of reality or everything that happens in the miracle. And I want to say, no, I don't think rape is a miracle, you know, mm. and there's a lot of mundane things that go on day to day. So it's something that's good, something that's unusual. And the third one is it's something that in, in which God acts in relation to creation. Mm. And that's the part that I think the possible and impossible and supernatural, all that kind of language sort of comes into play. Mm. What I want to say is that supernatural, if it means that God single-handedly brings something about, well, you already know my, my objection to that view. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, if supernatural means overpowering the laws or activity of natural beings like you and me or the laws of nature or whatever, then I don't think God's capable of that. Mm. However, because I think God always does what's possible or offers possibilities, some of the things that are possible moment by moment might be hidden to us. In other words, uh, we don't know everything that's going to happen here. Hmm. Um, and so what we see as a miracle isn't because God somehow decided to control and overcome the laws of nature. It's because God acted, there was some kind of creaturely response or the conditions of creation were conducive for this kind of good and unusual event, and therefore a miracle occurs. So what do we do then with the story of Lazarus? Um, mm. I know like in it's your book, re- you, you point out that like there's no miracles that you can think of that you know are just God acting alone. But when I look at that story, other than the people who are around Jesus, it seems like it's just Jesus and Lazarus who is dead. So what do we do with that? (laughs) Yeah, there's some really interesting parts of that story. And and first, let me begin by saying it's a tough one. Yeah. Um, But that's the curve. That's the curveball story right there. (laughs) Yeah. But as I have explored that story, there are things that popped out to me that I never noticed before. Hmm. First of all, when Jesus is first told that Lazarus is dead, Jesus says, no, he's just sleeping. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Now, if that's the case, either Jesus was mistaken, which causes some problems, hmm. or he was correct, and then later on in the story, you're not quite sure. <laughs> I don't know. Are you have you ever seen the movie Princess Bride? I have not. Oh, there's one scene in which one guy is brought to Miracle Max, who is dead, and Miracle Max looks at him and he says, "He's mostly dead." <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, you know, is Lazarus mostly dead? Yeah. Hmm. Um, a, a second interesting hmm. part of the story: when Jesus comes to the tomb, he asks somebody to roll the stone away. Weird, weird thing. Now, if Jesus has got the power to single-handedly raise Lazarus to life and bring him out, why in the world is he need help 
rolling that stone away. Mm, you could just make it disappear. <laughs> yeah, just make yeah. it disappear. Right. Now, interestingly enough, when Jesus himself is resurrected, Matthew says an angel rolls that stone away. Mm. So it seems like even God can't roll stones here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So another interesting clue in this story. Mm. Third one. Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus. Why did he just up and snap his fingers? Instead, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Hmm. A, lot of, uh, a lot of biblical scholars have noted the similarities between this and God creating by the power of his word. Hmm. Now, creating by the power of the word or asking Lazarus to come forth, it easily can be interpreted as requiring a response. Hmm. But if Lazarus is unresponsive, if dead people can't respond, then it makes no sense to say Lazarus come forth. Mm. But maybe it's the case that that uh, Lazarus can Lazarus can uh, respond here, mm. either that he's not fully dead, or there's capacities even for the body of Lazarus to be revived in that moment. Um, so there's a lot of interesting passages or aspects of that that make the story one that I admit is difficult, but doesn't contradict my overall uh, vision of miracles. So even on the surface, like I, like I said, it seems like it's just Jesus and Lazarus who's dead. But in reality, if you look at those finer details of the story, there is at least some level of cooperation going on. Like even, right. I never really even thought about the people moving away the stone. Like if they would have said, yeah, we're not moving away the stone. Yeah. Okay. Well, and then I guess we're just going to move on, you know, from here. Lazarus. But, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But I guess to have the faith that, okay, well, he said to move the stone away. So let's move the stone away. And they're like, well, it's going to stink. All right. Yeah. We'll move it away anyway. And then maybe that was like the first step of what needed to be done for the miracle to happen. Yeah. Once I start thinking in terms of God's uncontrolling love theology, it's wild the things in scripture that pop out that I never noticed before. Hmm. Um, I, I don't want to make this claim. I don't want to claim that every last passage of Scripture obviously supports the uncontrolling love view. I'm mm -hmm. not making that claim, but I am making this one. I don't know of any Scripture that obviously undercuts it or opposes it or explicitly goes against it. Yeah. There's lots of things that support it. And other things like the story of Lazarus, man, you can interpret it a variety of ways. And uh, some of those ways can uh, fit very nicely with a God can't view. And I think that's important because it's like a lot of the, the, the negative feedback that I've gotten when I've posted our episodes is that like, you know, well, you're saying that God isn't powerful. And it's like, well, I'm not saying that no. at all. Like God is powerful, but to go back to that story of Lazarus, like it's almost like God's power is contained in this. And you can tell me if I'm on the right direction here, but it's almost like contained in this box. And by, you know, obeying that command to roll away the stone is like opening a door to that box that releases some of that power, creates that new possibility. Like you said, like the, the possibility wasn't there when the rock was in front of the cave, but now that it's moved or the tomb, but now that it's moved away, there's a new possibility there for something to happen. Yeah. That's nicely put. Yeah. Sometimes I, I'll say it like this. Um, who's more powerful, Mother Teresa or the body or the weightlifting champion of 1920. Mm. Now the weightlifting champion of 1920 could lift a lot more weight than mother Teresa could. Mm. 
But Mother Teresa's ability to influence and persuade others to join the ways of love make her far more powerful than that 1920s weightlifter or even a weightlifter today. But since Mother Teresa is not alive, I'm using someone who <laughs> would be alive. Sure. But my point is that power, the greatest uh, individual, the most powerful individual is the one who can uh, persuade others to join in a particular task, a particular yeah. purpose. And that's what makes God so, in my view, almighty. Mm. God's ability to be present to all creation, to lure, to call, to woo, to command, to persuade, cooperation by creatures of various complexities. I'm thinking now back to our my question about, you know, praying and stuff. It's, you know, I think I can imagine myself now, like while praying, asking myself, like, okay, I'm asking God to raise Lazarus, whatever that situation might be for me, but what what stones are in the way of that tomb right. that perhaps need to be moved out of the way that I might be able to have the power to move myself, or maybe they can't be moved. So I kind of have to recognize that as well. But I think that's a maybe a helpful illustration for people is to ask yourself mm. what stones are in front of this tomb that need to be moved. That, I'm going to steal that. That's really good. I like that analogy a lot. Mm. And to, to take it one more step, one step further, there may be some stones in front of the tomb that you can't move, but others could move. And you're mm. actually relying upon others to do something. And they may or may not come through for you. I mean, yeah. to go back to the virus, we're relying on smart scientists to come up to, with some kind <laughs> of a vaccine. And right. maybe they'll do it. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll do it quickly, slowly. But a lot of us are waiting for scientists to roll the stone away. Really good. Wow. Well, Thomas, we are just about um, out of time. But as always, this has been super helpful and insightful. So thanks for making the time for me. Man, I've really enjoyed the conversation, Glenn. And um, it's always good to talk with you. Thank you. You as well. And I know uh, before you go, I know before this book came out, you released a book about leadership as well, right? I don't know if you want to plug that real quick. Yeah, I'm the director of the Center for Open and Relational Theology, and uh, some folks who are related to that center and, and friends of the center put together a book of 50-plus essays on what leadership looks like if we think that God is open and relational. So the, mm. the title is Open and Relational Leadership Leading with Love. Awesome. And that's on Amazon? That is on Amazon. Yeah, and actually, you know, you, would you mind if I said one other thing related to the center? Please do. Um, a couple of months ago, we joined with Northwind Theological Seminary to uh, begin a program for uh, people who want to pursue their doctorates, hmm. a doctorate in theology and ministry with an emphasis on open and relational theology. Hmm. So at this point, I have about a dozen doctoral students that I work with, but this program is fully online, which means that uh, the doctoral work is, it, we follow what's called an Oxford style, which means uh, there are readings that I give each student, and then I have, uh, you know, Zoom evaluations, and we work toward a, a, some kind of final project, a dissertation or whatever. Hmm. But anyway, um, maybe there are some people who are listening to this who are would like to pursue their doctoral degree in theology and ministry. And if so, I'd love to uh, reach out to them. That's really good. I'll put that uh, link in the, in the show notes. And just to kind of take that a little bit further, someone might be asking like, is it 
Um, is the, the program moldable or adaptable to somebody who is like a parent, they're working a full-time job? Is the schedule kind of workable? Oh, that's what's one of the best things about this. Not only is it less expensive than almost every other doctoral program I know, it's also um, fits, it's scheduled around the individual student's own schedule, whether it's work or family. Mm. So uh, what I do is I talk with a student and they, we say, look, you know, for this next course, you've got these things going on in your life. So this is going to fit, you know, for you to do this course during this time span. And since it's not a, a, a group kind of thing, since it's individual, I can not only tailor uh, the um, scheduling for each student, but also the readings and the kind mm. of topics. So um, there's a lot of advantages to this program. Actually, you know, here, here's a wild idea. Maybe mm. you want to cut this out of your final thing. But, um, <laughs> sure. I just a couple of weeks ago had a, a little audio commercial made that gives some of this information. Um, it's maybe a minute and a half long. Okay. What do you think about me sending that to you and you could tag it on at the end of this interview or something? Yeah, send that to me and I will definitely edit that on uh, right after we say goodbye and that way people can listen to it for sure. Cool. Well, thanks for that, Glenn. Yeah, thank you. Well, Thomas, I'll put all the links on everything, like I said, in the show notes, and we'll do this again for round four <laughs> soon. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> all right, man. Thank you so much. See you, Glenn. Are you ready for the next step? Is it time to pursue your doctorate? Northwind Theological Seminary offers a fully online doctoral program to help you move ahead. This DTM, Doctorate in Theology and Ministry, centers on issues in open and relational theology. World-renowned theologian Thomas J. Ord directs this program. You'd work directly with Dr. Ord to explore open and relational topics that interest you. As a fully online startup institution, Northwind's doctoral program is far less expensive than other programs. Scholarships are also available. As a doctoral student, you set your own pace. You can work around your personal, family, or work schedules, and you'll likely finish the degree in less than three years. The Doctorate in Theology and Ministry is co-sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which Dr. Ord directs. You'll have access to Center's resources and get to know its community of scholars, activists, practitioners, and educators. For more information, see the seminary website or search Open and Relational Theology at Northwind. It's time to pursue your doctoral degree. Reach out to Northwind now.
take my morale.